This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle, and this is the week of January 1st, 2024. I don't believe that that is the year. I mean, it, it is. Doesn't, I do. It doesn't feel right. It seems incorrect somehow. It does seem incorrect. I don't I don't like it. I don't want it. But it is <laughs> what it is. And that's where we are. So Happy New Year, everyone. With that ringing endorsement that we just gave. I hope your holidays went well. End of year, beginning of new year were the way you wanted them to be. Or at the very least, not terrible yeah. yeah, which after the last few years, I feel like that's as much as we can hope for. Yep. I don't know. Maybe I'm being a bit pessimistic for this time of new beginnings. But anyway, it's an election year. It, <laughs> oh, we, pessimistic. we gotta. Yeah, we must <laughs> gird our loins for what's coming up. All right. So, Emily, how are you doing? I'm great. I mean, you know, I faced this election cycle with dread, but I was just at Disney World with a family group of 21 people. And I mean, things went wrong here and there, as you would expect with 21 people in a huge tourist destination for a week. But mostly it was great. It was amazing. I told my therapist before I went that my goal here was to see the inner child of my parents and my in-laws. And and I did it. You did (laughs) it. I did it. (laughs) I did it. We we experienced wonder and joy together. And we had a good Christmas, and my my daughter's big Christmas present will not be here until April because her big Christmas present was telling her that we have acquiesced to her ongoing campaign for a second dog. Specifically, she wanted a corgi, and so a corgi is what we will be getting. Um, who doesn't have, want a corgi? Who doesn't want a corgi? Apparently, they're very barky and stubborn. Yeah. But they do have those cute little faces and those cute little legs. So, oh my goodness, yes they do. Yeah. 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 So things are pretty good over here, actually. You know, vibes and pixie dust and Christmas magic. Yes. Uh, yeah, I'm all good. How about you? I'm good. We had a good holiday and we had family in town and that was very nice and it didn't get overwhelming in the way that it can and the kids handled the holiday better than they ever have, which I guess is part of them growing up and us like teaching them how to be people but it was good i think i mentioned in the last one like in the in the episode before that my younger daughter broke her pinky at least they think she broke her pinky and she has acted like it has been totally fine but it's all on track and we got them a gymnastics bar or we didn't my my wife's parents got them a gymnastics bar that we set up in our playroom and gosh You'd think she doesn't have a broken pinky with how much she is deciding to go <laughs> on that thing. <laughs> but you know what? That's fine. It's fine. She's having a good time. So, And I have been told that a contract is being put together for me to have a job. So Yay! happy new year to me. At some point soon, I should have gainful employment other than substitute teaching. So, yay. That is, that is awesome. <laughs> it's very exciting. I'm very grateful. I also wish that it could have been taken care of like four months ago, but uh-huh. that's okay. Better late than never in terms of being able to pay my mortgage, I mm-hmm. guess. 
So, yeah. <laughs> so that's where we are. I am looking forward to 2024. I know I was very pessimistic in the intro, but obviously election years are terrible and nobody likes them. But I think me personally, this year should go hopefully pretty well. Yeah. Learning new things, Good. starting new job, getting new routines. So, yeah. That's awesome. All right. Well, we're ostensibly here to talk about Jeopardy. So we took a week off, as some listeners may have noticed, also might not have. So we'll quickly just go back over the results from the previous week, which was, of course, the week of December 25th, last full week of 2023. It started, I guess, with the ending, which is weird, Mm -hmm. of the, the second chance week one for this season i don't know how to phrase this stuff anyway it was javeria jason and iris we'd already talked about the first game of the two-day total point affair javeria had a commanding lead from friday and she didn't end up winning the second match technically but she had a lock tournament position anyway because of her extremely high score of 50 whatever thousand from the first day so Javeria punches her ticket to the next wildcard thing, which should be coming up pretty soon, I think, is my understanding. And then we start the second week of the Second Chance competition. Mm-hmm. We have Miles Carp, Emily Kowaler, and Christopher Pennant. And in that game, Christopher comes out on top. So he will be in the finals that we see later. On Wednesday, we had Tammy Groner. Greg Chaja and Ben Hebert and Greg is the winner there. So he moves on the third semifinal. We have Johnny Brown, Mitch Cutter and Raquel Mata. And the finalist there is Johnny. So Mm -hmm. we'll see them in the finals. And then finally we get to Friday when the first of the finals games. So it's Christopher, Johnny and Greg at the end of that game, Greg has a, a lead at 35,200. Johnny's not too far behind at 29,600, and Christopher's at 16,000. So this one is a much closer final than what we had before in the previous week. And yeah, so that brings us to this week where we'll actually talk about the games. So on Monday, January 1st, game two of the finals of the second week of the second chance competition, we have Christopher Pennant, a sports journalist and announcer from Chicago, Illinois who is at 16,000. Shawnee Brown, a postdoctoral researcher originally from Cincinnati, Ohio, who is at 29,600. And Greg Chaja, a cardiologist from San Diego, California, who is at 35,200. Jeopardy round categories are haunting literature, Native Americans, movies by Google search, people, it's an X car for a reason, and crossword clues C. I got there eventually, but am I the only one who mixes up cephalopod and cetacean? That is not a question for me to answer because... (laughs) Don't mix those up. Because I don't mix those up. So you might be. Yeah. Crossword clues C at the $1,000 level, a squid or nautilus, 10 letters. And I was like, it's a cetacean. Nope, that is the other sea creature, like class of sea creature with a name that starts with C. That's cephalopod. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Also, counting it out, Cetacean has eight letters. The, yeah, it's, yes. But it's also not a squid or nautilus, so that's probably more accurate and more... Con- yep. <laughs> the thing to remember better is not that Cephalopod has ten letters and Cetacean has eight. <laughs> yeah, no. But, yeah. I do like the word at the $600 level, a merchant of Gouda, 12 letters. That's a cheesemonger. Mm-hmm. Sounds like it should be an insult. 
but it is in it fact a, comp- a compliment in my opinion. <laughs> yes, I agree. So I don't know if this is the reason that Pontiac in general isn't a car company anymore, but the $800 level of the X car category, an auto writer found the Aztec from this GM brand looked like a transformer figure based on a dustbuster. That's the Pontiac Aztec. Don't know if anybody remembers that, but actually I'm going to pull up a picture right now because in my mind, it looks an awful lot like the Cybertruck from Tesla. Hmm. No, you know what? It looks better than the Cybertruck. It actually, based on modern cars now, it doesn't look that bad, but I guess it was just ahead of its time for, you know, 2000 to 2005. People weren't ready for, for that kind of shape of vehicle. Mm Mm-hmm. It's too bad, really. I was stumped by most of these X car clues. Mm. I, I did know the 200 and the 400 who made the Mustang 2. That's forward of the 400 and the, the Corvair from the make that also gave us the Corvette. I knew that was Chevrolet, but yeah, unsafe that, at any speed. Yes, <laughs> that's fun. Yeah. Uh, Rough break. The $200 level of haunting literature for Greg. Scrooge hears from this man that even after being dead for seven years, he found no rest, no peace, incessant torture of remorse. And Greg guessed the wrong Christmas Carol character with who is Cratchit. And then Christopher got the rebound with Jacob Marley. Yeah. There's part of me that's always like Jacob and Robert Marley. (laughs) I, I recently, I recently ran a Dungeons and Dragons module that I built based on, not really based on a Christmas Carol, but sort of that's like the jumping off point and one of my players referred to jacob marley as bob marley which <laughs> which changed the the whole landscape of the adventure from that point on. no i'm just kidding daily double number one is in crossword clues c at the 400 dollars level pick number 16 shawnee finds it she's at 3800 with Greg at 1200 and Christopher at 4600. She makes it a true daily double and gets the clue Ohio hoopster or offhand attitude. And she gets that one correct. It is Cavalier. Which could also go in the X car category. It's true. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Shawnee's in the lead with 8200. Christopher's at 5000. Greg is at 3000. And the double Jeopardy categories are religion, tough seven letter words, retired, misheard lyrics, Long time and no see. That's no like the verb and see like the body of water. Hmm. They struggled with those misheard lyrics. Yeah. Yeah. It's tricky because like it's not the correct lyrics. That's the whole point. So you've got to figure out kind of what the sounds like is. Right, or kind of hope that you have made this mistake before, which is a weird Mm -hmm. thing to go into trivia with, like, man, I hope I've gotten things wrong in the right way to Mm -hmm. be able to get this one question right. Yeah. At the $800 level, many have sung along to the radio, I left my brains down in here. And nobody tried it. Africa. Have many sung along to that? Have, have, I don't know. Seems like a bold claim to me. Yeah, really. I really feel like a misheard lyrics category without a reference to the cross-eyed bear that you gave to me is is a wasted opportunity. What is the real lyric? The cross-eyed bear in in You Oughta Know by Alanis Morissette. That makes a lot more sense. Because until (laughs) this very moment, I was sure it was cross-eyed bear. Really? Yeah. 
I, I mean, I never gave it much thought because, because I mean, to be fair, song lyrics don't always have to make sense. It's true. Because in a sense, it is poetry. It can be symbolic. It can be entirely inside for the person who's singing the song and nobody else has any idea what it means. Mm-hmm. But if it fits the rhyme structure, it's good. Yeah. I don't give a lot of thought to lyrics Mm-hmm. at all because if i don't understand it i'm like meh whatever i'm not supposed to or it's fine like i don't yeah. have to <laughs> but that makes a lot more sense <laughs> what a great talk uh, i learned today that was well worth this whole like if nothing else funny or interesting happens i think we're good now i think we're good yeah yeah i've probably talked about this on the podcast before that but the 800 dollars level of retired this ben and jerry's flavor Vanilla ice cream with a nutty brittle was sent up the Amazon River in 1999. Nobody could think of it. It's Rainforest Crunch. And I don't remember whether Rainforest Crunch is in the Ben and Jerry's flavor graveyard, but I would assume that it is. And the Ben and Jerry's flavor graveyard is a really fun little detour if you happen to be in that area. You Um, you have talked about the flavor graveyard. I I love the flavor graveyard. I don't need to go into great detail about it again. Rest in peace, Rainforest Crunch. R.I.P. Daily Double number two is in no C at the $800 level. Pick number 20. Both of these show up kind of late in the round. Greg finds it. He is at $6,200. Johnny's at $12,200. Christopher is at $6,600. Bets it all. Gets a clue. There are 19 active volcanoes in this sea, including ones on Saba and Montserrat. And he gets it correct with what is the Caribbean Mm-hmm. That's surprising to me. Nineteen active volcanoes. I never, I just never really thought about it. Yeah. And daily double number three is in religion at the eight hundred dollar level. Greg finds this one as well. At this point, he's at twelve thousand eight hundred with Shawnee at twelve thousand two hundred and Christopher at eighty six hundred. He wagers three thousand and he gets the clue. Perun was the thunder god of the ancient Slavs. Harundan was this day of the week. And he doesn't know. He tries Saturday, one in seven shot. But the correct response here is Thursday. And the connection to make was the Thunder God, who is recognized in our days of the week as Thor, Thursday. Right. And so as it happens, Thursday is also the day of the Thunder God in that system. Yeah. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Greg's at 10,600. Johnny is at 13,800. Christopher is at 8,600. And the final Jeopardy category is landmarks. The clue is 213 feet wide. This late 18th century European structure has five portals, the middle of which was at first for royals only. Christopher wrote, what is Big Ben? Interesting uh, thought, but that is incorrect. He wagered 8,600. Greg got it right with what is the Brandenburg Gate and wagered nothing. Didn't want to risk it coming into this end of this two day total point affair. Johnny also got it correct with what is the Brandenburg Gate and wagered everything going up to 27,600. So that means, ooh, I haven't done the math. If Greg had bet everything he still would have ended up in second place. Okay, so Johnny betting everything uh, kind of guaranteed their victory here at the end of, of the two-day total point affair. So mm-hmm. we will see her later. So that brings us to Tuesday. 
January 2nd, where we are now in another round of Second Chance. So we're in semifinal game one with the contestants Michael Cavalieri, a consultant from New York, New York, Sharon Bishop, a high school Spanish teacher from Pawtucket, Rhode Island, and Sophia Wang, a senior social studies major at Harvard College from Chevy Chase, Maryland. People make fun of the social studies majors, like, oh, what are you doing, dioramas? But social studies is actually a very intense, it's like a hybrid major of like poli-sci and social theory stuff, like philosophy kinds of stuff and history and, and a few other disciplines. It's an intense major. Cool. Yeah. My roommate was a social studies major. Not everybody has to write a thesis. It's normally an optional for honors thing, but if you're in social studies, you must write a thesis. Wow. Um, So anyway, we get the Jeopardy round categories at the museum, stocks and investments, geography test, concert tours, close encounters, and the Charles III kind. (laughs) $800 clue of close encounters. A decent approximation is close enough for this improvisation-based musical genre. Michael got it. That's jazz. I don't know if I've gone on my diatribe on the podcast about that term. Hmm. Um, I, don't, that, that ter- I don't know that, that, that you have. Phrase, I mean, I can imagine it. Close enough for jazz is entirely missing the point. Jazz is not imprecise. Mm-hmm. The idea that you're just, you just make up anything. You just whatever. It's jazz. It's like, no, absolutely not. Yeah. In certain types of jazz, okay, I guess you can like truly make up whatever you want, like free jazz, right? The point of free jazz is to eschew all of those European structures that underlie our traditional music. But for most of the jazz that you're going to hear, there is not a close enough for, right? There is mm-hmm. right and wrong. And even if if you play a quote unquote wrong note, the way you treat it ends up making it right. If you do it well, but you have to know what you're doing. There are many, many stories of jazz musicians getting extremely intense. I mean, think of whiplash, right? Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, not, you know, obviously it's (laughs) dramatized, dramatized and it's not a true story, but the kind of intensity that jazz musicians have about, being precise and doing things that, to the best of their ability, the the term close enough for jazz is a disservice to the art form. Yeah, absolutely. Cosine. The $400 clue of Charles III. Getting get a little bit controversial. Charles's mother said it was her wish that this woman have the title queen consort. The consort part has gone away. Sophia got it with who is Camilla. Didn't have to give last names, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's it's controversial. Should she be allowed to be queen and not mm-hmm. queen consort? It's something that matters a whole lot in the impact that it has on the real world. So I think we should definitely care more about the British royals and mm. all of the rules that they have to follow. I'm just kidding. I don't, yeah. I don't believe no. that. <laughs> they are a celebrity family like any other who, in my opinion, if they went away, things would be fine. Yep. My British friends are mostly of the same opinion, and I am like that's it's kind of none of my business, you know, not mm-hmm. not my circus, not my clowns, but I think I'm with you. Yeah. Daily double number one is further down in that Charles category at the eight hundred dollar level. Pick number sixteen. Michael finds it. He's up to sixty four hundred. Sophia's at one thousand. Sharon's at fourteen hundred. Huidra's twenty six hundred. 
gets the clue. Charles's coronation on May 6, 2023 at this location was the first British coronation in seven decades. And he gets it correct with what is Westminster Abbey. And I didn't, I didn't mention this before when he made his wager, he said, I know I'm supposed to bet it all, but I'm going to bet 2,600. If you know you're supposed to bet it all, then bet, bet it all. all. <laughs> Give yourself a better chance of winning. What are you right. doing? I mean, unless you're just really not confident at all in Charles the Third, but then why are you hunting for the daily double in that category anyway? Right. Yeah. At the end of the Jeopardy round, Sophia's at twenty four hundred, Sharon's at thirty four hundred, Michael is up to ten thousand. Could be higher. Double Jeopardy categories are what's new with new in quotation marks, N-E-W, those who celebrate, let's talk astronomy, child performers, all the world's Shakespeare stage, and historic lasts. I think $2,000 of astronomy, this word for when the moon is between half and full can be pronounced with either a hard or soft G sound. I was unaware of that, but I think I'm just going to pronounce it gibbous from now on because that feels more fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although I don't know if it'll be more fun if I'm not being silly, right? If that's just an acceptable pronunciation, why am I right. even bothering? Ugh, taking away my joy. The $1,200 clue of historic lasts, the angel of Rome, Alessandro Moreschi, who died in 1922, was the last of these singers, many sold, quote unquote, by poor parents. Sharon got that those are castrati, which mm-hmm. I imagine most trivia people know what castrati are. Yeah. But if you don't, the underlying root there is castrate, mm-hmm. right? So they were boys who were castrated so that as their bodies grew, they would not necessarily go through puberty in the normal way and their voices would remain high. But they still grew, like they still grew to adult size. So mm-hmm. castrati were like big, full grown adult men with these very high voices, but very powerful extremely powerful voices like they could sing you know over an entire operatic orchestra with no problem yeah except they're singing up in a you know a child's range which i'm i'm okay with that practice going away (laughs) yeah daily double number one is in all the world of shakespeare stage it says the 1600 dollar level it was the very first pick of the round sophia found it her score at that point was 2,400. Sharon was at 3,400. Michael at 10,000. She wagered 1,400 of it. I say go a little bigger here. And got the clue. The winter's tale alternates between Sicily and this Czech region that gave us a word for an unorthodox, often arty person. And she got it correct. It's Bohemia. Yeah. And Daily Double number three is in Let's Talk Astronomy at the $1,200 level. It's only pick number three. So they get him out of the way very early in this round. Michael uncovers it. He is at 11,200. Sophia's at 3,800. Sharon's at 3,400. And he wagers 4,800. Gets the clue. When two celestial bodies appear close together, they are in this, also a part of speech. And he gets correct with what is conjunction. In Mm. conjunction. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Sophia is at 14,600. Sharon's at 5,800. Michael is at 28,800. So he does not quite have a lot game. The final Jeopardy category is landmarks. And the clue is during Pope John Paul II's 1987 visit to Los Angeles, pranksters covered up this letter in a local landmark. We come to Sharon first, and she has correctly responded. What is L? Ken says you will not take the L because that is correct. (laughs) 
The L, so the L in the Hollywood sign, Hollywood becomes Hollywood. Sharon has wagered a thousand, bringing her up to 6,800. Sophia figured out the landmark, but missed the this, this letter. Right, so this Sophia letter. Wrote, yeah. Sophia wrote, what is the Hollywood sign? That is not correct because we were looking for the letter L. And Sophia wagered 14,201 trying to get above where Michael is so that if he misses, she would, and she got it correct, she would win. But yep. she drops down to 399 and Michael missed. He guessed the letter O. Yep. And he wagered oh. 500, which drops yeah. him down to 28,300. I really feel for Sophia here because she figured it out and misinterpreted what the correct response was supposed to be. Right. Could have taken the win here, gotten up to, could have gotten up to 28,801. But Michael finishes with 28,300 and that gives him the win. That's right. Yeah. On Wednesday, January 3rd, semifinal game two, we have the contestants Rachel Cohen, a consultant originally from Chevy Chase, Maryland. That's two in a row from Chevy Chase, Maryland. Randall Rayford, a solar project developer from Houston, Texas, and Andrew Watley, an academic administrator originally from Beauregard, Alabama. The Jeopardy round categories are John Green, clues presented by John Green, TV Connections, Where'd You Go, Blank and Blank Business, Big and Little Geography, and Starts and Ends with T. They left the John Green clues to the very end, which is both a strategic error and a personal affront to me. (laughs) (laughs) To you and you alone. Individually. (laughs) As soon as this category came up, I was like, Emily's going to have something to say. I I do. I enjoy John Green's work. You didn't really need to know his work um, at all to answer any of these because he was talking about different facts and historical figures who have come up in his various novels and podcasts and video series and whatever but i enjoyed seeing him on jeopardy didn't actually know the 400 level it's a video clue two books that i often recommend and that inspired me to write for teens are speak by laurie hulse anderson and one by walter dean myers steve is on trial for murder but is he really this the title of the book and i didn't know that book randall tried what is guilty but a monster is what they were looking for there there was a clue about Emily Dickinson. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the Anthropocene reviewed episode about the QWERTY keyboard, but there was one where he mentioned that that had been one of the topics and the contestants needed to come up with QWERTY. They did pretty well in this one. Yeah, yeah, they did. They should have gone to them first, though, because if there's a video category, Jeopardy will let the clock run until all the video clues are dealt with. So at least we think that's the case. So in the Jeopardy category, you want to clear those video categories so that they'll stop the round if it's long, because you want enough time to cover all your higher value clues in the double Jeopardy round. Now, they didn't run out of time in this episode. It's true. Yeah, they ended up getting to all of the clues, but they will try not to stop the clock if there are video clues left on the board. And if if there are video categories, you're likely to run out of time. So you want to... Strategic about it. Yeah, you want to be strategic, and the priority is to play all the double jeopardy clues. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently, back in the 1880s, Wellesley College specified this type of leave from teaching should be spent in Europe with half year pay. That's a sabbatical. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could spend half 
a year in Europe with mm-hmm. pay. I would be okay with that. Of course, I'd have to go back to 1880s and work for Wellesley College, but that's a right. small thing to, that's a I small mean, price to pay to be able to get this, I don't know, four months in Europe. <laughs> I don't think there is a thing you could do in the world where I would be like, yes, I would like to live before there were antibiotics. You know, that's fair. Amen. People, people talk about like how things were, you know, in an idealistic sense. I'm like, man, people died because they like got a scratch. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Like, come on. <laughs> we we have it better now. Daily Double number one is in Where'd You Go? It's at the $1,000 level. Pick number eight. Rachel finds it. She is tied with Randall at 1600 They are behind Andrew, who's at 2200 She makes it a true Daily Double, and she gets the clue. This term for a trip taken by a po- politician at public expense can also be used for a PR event for a film or TV show. And she gets that correct. It's a junket. And at the end of the Jeopardy round, Randall is in a slim lead with 6400 Rachel's right behind him at 6000 and Andrew's at 4400 And the double Jeopardy categories are History of the Americas, 11-letter words, scientists, paint by numbers, military abbreviations, and William Blake in pop culture. I was like, I know a bunch of military acronyms. And then I was like, all of mine have an F in them. So they're not going to come up <laughs> They're not here. showing up here. <laughs> yeah. Why don't we do a little military abbreviation trivia? I'm going to keep it clean. Mm-hmm. Uh, but SNAFU is a military abbreviation, or maybe not an official one, maybe a colloquially used one in the military, but situation normal is what the SN is for. And then, and then FUBAR, if you've ever mm-hmm. encountered that, is mm-hmm. beyond all recognition. Yeah. Yeah, they're not going to yeah. put either of those in Jeopardy category. Probably <laughs> not. <laughs> Probably not. They did have some some more challenging ones, you know, OCS. If you graduated from this, expect to be ready to lead. Randall knew the O was officer, but couldn't quite get his brain to fill in the rest of the blanks. Rachel got it with officer candidate school. And then MOS, it's what your job is. It's your military occupational specialty. Yeah, I thought Rachel's guess of mission of service was reasonable. Yeah, it was a fine guess, but $2,000 level of paint by numbers. Looted by Nazis, the father, a 1911 work by this Russian Empire-born painter, got $7.4 million for the rightful heirs in 2022. Rachel said, who is Chagall? That's correct. Now, they left out that the painter was also Jewish, but even just Russian Empire-born, it's like, well, I mean, it's got to be Chagall. Yeah. A disappointing incorrect response at the $800 level of paint by numbers. In 2011, a portrait of surrealist poet Paul Elward by this Spaniard sold for more than $21 million. Rachel guessed who's Picasso. Come on, Rachel, listen to my deep dive. Randall got it with Dolly. Mm-hmm. Daily Double number one is again the first pick in the round, just like yesterday. It's in the History of Americas at the $1,600 level. Andrew finds it. He's at $4,400. Randall's at $6,400. Rachel's at $6,000. He wagers $3,600 and gets the clue. In 1899, an international ruling gave the oil-rich Essequibo region to Britain. Now it's part of this country, and some Venezuelans covet it. He guessed what is Trinidad and Tobago, which is nearby Venezuela and former British colony, but it is in fact Guyana. Mm-hmm. And Daily Double number three is pick number 19 at the $1,200 level of scientists. 
Randall finds this one. He's at 9,200 with Andrew at 5,200 and Rachel at 10,800. He is confident. He makes it a true daily double with 7,600 left on the board. So if he were to drop to zero here, he couldn't retake the lead, but you know, he could probably get into contention. He gets the clue in 1843, this genetics pioneer awoke and found himself transformed into a novice in an Augustinian monastery in Brno. And that is Mendel, Gregor Mendel. He gets it correct. Nice job. Yeah. Clever writing there with Gregor transformation, although I feel like that's an inaccurate representation of the history, but whatever. Yeah. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Randall is in the lead at 19,600. Rachel's at 13,200 and Andrew is at 6,400. Final jeopardy category is from the French. And we get the clue with murder shadows, a nosy reporter and Peter Laurie. 1940s Stranger on the Third Floor is the first example of this, some say. Andrew got it correct with what is film noir. Mm-hmm. And he wagered everything, went to 12,800. Rachel got it incorrect, wrote what is voyeurism. Wagered 399 to stay a dollar above Andrew's all in. And Randall got it correct with what is film noir, went up to 26,401, moves on to the finals. Mm-hmm. And that brings us to Thursday. This is our third game of the semifinals. Our contestants are Kelly Shannon Henderson, a classics professor from Cincinnati, Ohio, Max Davison, a writer from Studio City, California, and Matt Harvey, a healthcare administrator from Providence, Rhode Island. And the Jeopardy Round categories are all about authors, which cabinet department, languages and their forms, I sent some negativity, game show, and of thrones all about authors at the 200 dollar level in 1836 she married theologian calvin stowe who encouraged her writing saying she must be a literary woman matt got that one that's harriet beecher stowe we've talked about her on a one of our early deep dives and she's kind of a cool figure and the whole beecher family was super important in like 19th century new england American Mm -hmm. history. They were all like clergymen, writers, thinkers, speakers, that kind of stuff. I missed, although the contestants got the $1,000 level of game show, this popular disc dropping game on The Price is Right is a variation of a pinball game of Asia. And I don't really watch The Price is Right, or at least I haven't enough to like know the different games. But I was Mm. like, ah, pinball game of Asia, pachinko. But Plinko, I guess, is what it's called in The Price is mm-hmm. Right. They did know their game shows. They did know their game shows, which, yeah. I mean, if you're on a game show, yeah. maybe you know game shows. Maybe you do. I don't really have. Yeah. Oh, we've also talked about the $800 level of languages in their forms, although I don't think I talked True. about this language. In this British dependency, Yanito, a mix of Spanish and English, is spoken in addition to English. And I don't think I touched on that in my deep dive about gibraltar but kelly knew it it's gibraltar hmm yeah yeah i don't i don't recall that which leads me to wonder what is the difference between yanito and spanglish huh although unless yanito is like its own actual like language with rules yeah daily double number one is in all about authors it's at the 800 level pick number 10 max finds it he's at 1200 matt's at 2000 Kelly's at 2,200. Any bets at all. Smart move. 
gets a clue this 19th century author of adventure novels suffered from tuberculosis and moved to the South Seas for his health, dying in Samoa. He guesses who is Cooper of the James Fenimore variety, but that's Robert Louis Stevenson. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Matt is at 6,400, Max is at 3,000, and Kelly is at 5,600. Double Jeopardy categories are state capitals of India, five-syllable verbs, put on your helmet, mythology, earth science, and new jazz. Unlike that old jazz. Yeah. They did not do well in the new jazz category. They got the $400 level. Jazz finds a way with this actor who has released three jazz albums with the Mildred Snitzer Orchestra. Max gets who is Jeff Goldblum. And they got the 2000. They showed a picture of this Grammy-winning jazz and pop singer of Come Away With Me collaborated with her half-sister Anushka Shankar on the track Unsaid. That's Nora Jones. Matt got that one. Uh, of course, you know, she's my cousin. We're all related. Right. Yes, of course. But they missed the 800, 1200, and uh, 1600, which I'm not super surprised about. To me, these are deeper cuts than people who are not into modern jazz would necessarily be able mm-hmm. to just kind of get. But yeah, you know. I knew Nora Jones. I also figured out the 1600. 2023 Hula Doc follows Atlanta musicians fusing jazz with this four-letter hip-hop subgenre associated with T.I. and Migos. I wasn't 100% confident, but I was like, that sounds like it's trap. And indeed, mm. it was trap. It was indeed trap. Yeah. $2,000 level of mythology is a little yikesy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Carried away for purposes uncertain. Mm-hmm. That's one way to put it. I do not actually know the the mythology there, but I've encountered the the term catamite elsewhere. So I, I think I can infer. I mean, Maybe if consent matters, yeah, <laughs> you know that's a yeah. that's a thing. So uh-huh. we had a reversal in the five syllable verbs at the twelve hundred dollar level. The clue was, for example, to turn the steering wheel too far to the left when your car drifts to the right. Kelly tried what is overcorrect and was ruled incorrect because that is four syllables. And then Max tried what is overcorrection and Ken paused for a second and then said, yeah, we can take that. But then before we hit daily double three, Ken issued a correction because overcorrection is a noun. And the category here was five syllable verbs. They were looking for overcompensate. I guess they maybe could have taken overcorrecting. As the gerund. Yeah, as the gerund. But yeah, overcorrection is is definitively a noun. Daily double number two is at the $2,000 level of put on your helmet. It's pick number five and Max finds it. He's at 4,600 with Matt at 10,800 and Kelly at 5,600. He wagers 2,000 of it and he gets the clue. Seen here, there's a picture. Is this ruler rocking a helmet while inspecting World War I troops? And he gets it correct with Kaiser Wilhelm, Kaiser Wilhelm II specifically. So that mm-hmm. gives him a little bit more. Yeah. And a daily double number three is in Earth Science at the $1,200 level. Kelly finds it at pick 14. She's at 6,400. Matt is at 10,800. And Max is at 8,200. She wagers 4,400. Gets the clue. This word for a landmass that's large, but still part of a larger one, has been around since 1845 and is often applied to India. And she gets it correct with what is a subcontinent. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Matt's in the lead with 16,400. Kelly's at 12,400. Max is at 9,000. 
The final Jeopardy category is Historic Americans, and the clue is they went their separate ways in 1806 and both became territorial governors, one of Upper Louisiana, the other of Missouri. We come to Max first. He has tried Who is Valentina? Uh, Ken asks if that is a shout out to his new bride. I fast forwarded past the interviews, but I guess there's a new bride. He says, no, that's my nine-year-old niece. She's the smartest person I know. I I love that. That's great. You go, Valentina. Max didn't wager anything, so he stays at 9,000. Kelly got it correct with who are Lewis and Clark and a 5601 wager. That brings her up to 18,001. And Matt has it correct also with who are Lewis and Clark and a $13,000 cover bet and a bit, which gives him 29,400 and sends him to the finals. Mm -hmm. So now we find ourselves on Friday with the finals of this third week of second chance game one of the two day total point affair. I just threw a lot of numbers out there there for this particular episode, but I think we all understand where we are. Uh, We have the contestants, Randall Rayford, a solar project developer from Houston, Texas, Michael Cavallari, a consultant from New York, New York, and Matt Harvey, a healthcare administrator from Providence, Rhode Island. Jeopardy round categories are black history year, this and that wait, wait, don't tell me spelled W E I G H T lines and classic novels nimming nims and our man on the field which is about athletes 200 dollars clue of lines and classic novels in this book you'll find i shall cut off her head and fill her mouth with garlic and i shall drive a stake through her body michael responded saying what is dracula and ken did not respond in kind now i don't know if that's out of respect, I have to think it is. Like, maybe it's like, no, that's Alex's thing. Uh, and I don't want to step on it rather than doing it to pay homage. You know, I know that's kind yeah. of a fine line uh-huh. to walk. But I'll tell you what, it felt weird. Yeah. To not have the host do a questionable Dracula impression. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Good pull for Michael at the $1,000 level of that. This Sinclair Lewis guy here's Preacher. Damned if I'm going to watch you seducing the first girl you get your big sweaty hands on. That is Elmer Gantry, which like, I feel like Elmer Gantry doesn't come up that much Mm-mm. in Jeopardy. I agree. Yeah. I recognize the name Elmer Gantry, but I have no connection for it. Yeah, it's a Sinclair Lewis novel about a like huckster, like traveling preacher guy. You know, presents himself I mean, as fits, a, yeah. you know, a traveling revival preacher, but is womanizing mm-hmm. and, you know, making lots of money off of the offering plate and whatever. I don't I don't remember details really well. OK. Um, yeah. I, uh, there was a movie of it. I watched the movie in a film class in college. Yeah, that's all I remember about Elmer Gantry. <laughs> OK. Randall had a couple rough breaks in Black History Year where they provided an event and the contestants needed to respond with the year when that happened which is a rough format at least for me so randall correctly got the year that barack obama quickly resigned from the senate for very good reason that was 2008 Mm -hmm. and the year that rosa parks stayed seated on mass transit and made history that was 1955 Michael was the one who got the $400 level with the year that Martin Luther King Jr. gave his I Have a Dream speech. That was 1963. And then the $800 level at John Glenn's request, Catherine Johnson verifies the computer's planning of Friendship 7's flight. Randall tried 1961. Nobody tried 
to get a rebound. It was 1962. And then just after World War II, Jackie Robinson integrates Major League Baseball. Randall tried 1946, but it was actually 1947. Yeah, off by one. Yeah, he was off by one a couple of times. A couple of times, yep. And off by two on the Martin Luther King Jr. I have a dream speech question. Yeah. Yeah, those those year questions I have a hard time with because I can generally get within yeah. a couple years either direction. Yeah, you know the era, you know like the importance of the event, but you might right. not necessarily remember the specific date. Yeah, yeah, which calendar year was it in? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Daily Double number one is at the $800 level of lines in a classic novel. It is pick number three. Michael finds it. He's at $1,600 and he's the only one with any money. He makes it a true Daily Double. And gets the clue, the very long opening line of this novel includes the phrase, it was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. He tries what's war and peace, but it is a tale of two cities. Yeah. Yeah, Wonder if he was thrown off by very long. Yeah. It's a very long opening line, more so than a very long novel. novel. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, a tale of two cities has that whole long opening line that's you know kind of pairs Mm -hmm. best of times worst of times etc so at the end of the jeopardy round matt is at 4200 michael has made it back up to 3600 randall's at 2400 and the double jeopardy categories are country overlaps 20th century pop culture famous objects alliteration the ocean and our woman in the field. And that was like professional fields, not, not sporting fields. Fields, yeah. Those country overlaps. They did okay with them in the end. In the but, end. Took a little bit of work to kind of figure it out there. Yeah. Especially I I did feel for Michael at the twelve hundred dollar level. Cobbles country, safaris to East Africa to meet Dar es Salaams. And he knew it, but he had just the hardest time putting together Afghanistanzania, which I don't blame him for. It does That's not a... roll off the tongue. No, it does not. The $800 clue of 20th century pop culture, one of the hottest toys of the late 90s, was a plush red tickle me him. Michael got it. That's Elmo. Reminded me of your St. Elmo deep dive <laughs> and also made me wonder, what if I said Erasmus? It's not called Erasmus. Tickle Me Erasmus, which feels like saying Tickle Me Erasmus feels wrong. It does not it does. feel it feels good. deeply wrong. <laughs> Very uncomfortable. Uh-huh. So I, I gave myself a chuckle from that. Now you've given us all a chuckle. <laughs> oh, and they missed the $1,600 level of alliteration. Old West Mom, did your little one burn himself? Administer this stuff made from the fat of the gander. That's goose grease. I don't, I don't know. It, it's a term that I have heard a number of times. Huh. Do you need goose grease? Well, especially uh, also, you know, if anyone watches The Office. Oh, yeah. Dwight, when Dwight brings in the goose for Christmas. It's been a while since I watched The Office. And so I have caved and subscribed to yet another streaming service. Is it, is it Peacock? And it's Peacock. Yes. I, I keep thinking, OK, now I'm surely subscribed to all of them. But I think There's I still can't watch all of the Star more. Trek stuff that people are out there watching. Oh, isn't it like CBS all access or whatever or is that just i already have cable why why is there like i'm already i'm already paying for cable preaching to the choir here 
why am I paying for cable? And then the cable networks are also producing exclusive content that I need to subscribe to an additional streaming service to access. It is nonsense. This is mm-hmm. this is the worst. This is what we get for thinking that we could have our cake and eat it too by getting free TV over the air and then also have streaming services whenever we wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, what was I going to say? Oh, since you have Peacock now, yeah, I highly, highly suggest you checking out the USA original series Psych. Oh, okay. Hilarious with very oh. niche references. Okay. That I'll... fit within our generation fairly okay. well. I'll put it on my list. The thing that we just watched that we are not talking about Jeopardy at all right now. Nope. But oh gosh, what was it called? Was it called Jury Duty? Have you watched that? No, but I, I it j- like just came across my socials as a thing, and I, I had no idea what it is. So yeah, okay. So Jury Duty is a show. The season's very short. It's like a reality show, except. Everyone except one person is an actor. There are, there is an entire, it's like the Truman show, but it's jury Mm -hmm. duty, right? So there's like 30 something actors and hidden cameras all over the place. And then there's one guy who thinks he's on a jury. Oh my gosh. That sounds actually pretty cool. (laughs) It was great. And like, I mean, okay. So it was, we were watching like the, the season and it would like, there were awkward parts. It was, you know, it was good. But Mm -hmm. then in the last episode, they do the big reveal and tell him what's been going on the whole time. And there's a whole bunch of like behind the scenes stuff to like show how they made it all work and aftermath of like how this guy feels about it and the relationships he's forming with these people who he thought he was getting to know, but he was getting to know them in character, you know, but like they were like mostly improvising, right? Because like you can't. Script you can't the whole script thing. that yeah yeah right and so and like the last episode i was like "Ooh, how am i going to feel about this afterwards and it made it so heartwarming oh it was that's awesome yeah so i was on the fence about this show until i got to the end and now like having watched the last episode like highly recommend great loved it yeah all right that's not about jeopardy though so we should get back on topic 400 dollar clue of famous objects Edward I called the hammer of the Scots, took this coronation block of their South to England in 1296. Matt got it correct. Do you know how it's actually supposed to be pronounced? Because I, I want to say Stone of Scone. I think it's Stone of Schoon. 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 <laughs> it's, it's Schoon, but you make it more Scottish, I think. Stone of Schoon. Yeah. Schoon. Okay. Sure. I don't know. I'll take your word for it. I just wanted to find out. Yeah. But Google has an answer. Oh. Of course it does. The American pronunciation is just straight up stone of scone. Well, that yeah, but American pronunciations are usually wrong. <laughs> yeah. And then the British pronunciation is more stone of scone, according to Wikipedia. Mm. Mm. Okay, good. Um, good. Oh, but Scot- Scottish Gaelic, it's scone. Okay, well, yeah. then that's what we'll go so, with. Yeah. All righty. Question answered. Daily Double number two is in the ocean somewhere out there <laughs> it's at the $1,600 level pick number five Matt finds it he is at 7,000 Michael's at 4,000 Randall's at 4,000 hey wagers 4,000 gets a clue a halocline is a zone of ocean water in which this measurement changes rapidly with depth he guesses what is temperature that's not it it's salinity hal h-a-l indicates mm. salt which is why the halogens in the periodic table are halogens because they are salt creators. Uh, okay. 
And Daily Double number three is in Famous Objects. It's at the $800 level. It's pick number 16, and Matt finds this one as well. He is at 10600 at this point, with Michael at 6800 and Randall at 4000 He wagers 4000 and he gets the clue. Carbon-14 dating tests in 1988 said the fabric of this had been made roughly between 1260 and 1390, not much earlier. And he gets it corrected, is the Shroud of Turin. So, you know, not scientifically not <laughs> contemporary with the, the life of Jesus. Just <laughs> missed it by that much. <laughs> 1300 uh, years, give or take. Yeah, I mean, what's 1300 years amongst friends? <laughs> All right, so f- going into Final Jeopardy, Matt's at 16,200, Michael's at 13,200, Randall's at 7,600. We get the Final Jeopardy category, children's books, and the clue, a 2020 edition of this beloved 1911 novel came with a glossary of horticultural terms and a location guide. Randall guessed what is Peter Rabbit? That's what came to mind for me. I didn't feel particularly confident about it. Not really but... a novel, though, right? Yeah, no, that's part of why. Yeah, I, was I thought like, of Peter I... Rabbit, and then I was like, it's definitely not a novel. They can't call that a novel. Sure. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. So, yeah, not that. And he wagered 7,600. He was behind. I mean, I, I don't I don't blame the bet. Wanted to get in the mix for the second day. So he drops to zero. Michael wrote, what is a children's garden of verses? Not a, another not bad guess, though probably not a novel he wagered 6600 which is half of his score so he drops 6600 and matt wrote what is the wind in the willows also incorrect he wagered 6200 so he drops to 10,000. they were looking for the secret garden Mm -hmm. which of course makes sense yes so going into monday there's not a big lead matt's at 10,000. michael's at Mm -hmm. 6600 randall's at zero 10,000 is a lot to make up but you can do it yeah it's anybody's tournament at this point yeah yeah. And we'll find out on Monday because that's how we should do finals, apparently. <laughs> so that's the end of the week. And this is when we remind you that we have a Patreon. It is patreon.com slash potentpotables. You can go there to support us financially if you feel that that is something that is worth doing. Even if you don't feel like it's worth doing, you you could still do it. You know, I don't want to try to, like, tell you your business or whatever. Anyway. You can find some exclusive content on there. I will probably be putting the quiz questions up and by probably who knows, it's a it's a it's a crapshoot. But the only way you'll find out is if you subscribe. So go ahead and go ahead and go there to find out patreon.com slash potentpotables. And of course, if you want to put your money towards something a little bit more important, then we encourage you to check out our show notes for some links to organizations that we feel are doing good work. Mm. Yeah. So, Emily, what do you think we're going to talk about this week? Are we talking about The Secret Garden by Francis Hodgson Burnett? We are not. Okay. I, I, yeah, good, absolutely good guess, but uh, I was like, nah. What about Robert Louis Stevenson? I considered it, but I didn't. For some reason, I started to look into it and I was like, I don't want to talk about this guy. <laughs> I don't know fair. why. I don't know the feeling where it came from, but I was like, nah. Okay, fair. <laughs> Could have worked your way around to Muppet Treasure Island. I believe me believe me that's where my brain went and I was like but I don't want to talk about all the other stuff fair all right are we talking about Jackie Robinson we are not that was ooh, that was close that was the other one I was like ooh, that'd be a good one to talk about no we are going back to it was in the Wednesday game double jeopardy history of the Americas two thousand dollar level El Pipila is the nickname of a Mexican folk hero who was said to have aided this revolutionary priest in 1810. Uh, Rachel guessed who is Pancho Villa. Pancho Villa was super not a priest. 
he he was quite the opposite. But that is Miguel Hidalgo y Costilla, which was a name that I had heard a few times before. And I was like, I feel like I should know more about this guy. Turns out he's super important. Okay. He is like the father of the nation for Mexico. So if you don't know anything about Miguel Hidalgo y Costilla, uh, welcome to the club. And that I will club. talk about him. Yes, for our neighboring country, probably someone we should know about, an important figure. So that's who I'm going to talk about. Awesome. Miguel Hidalgo. Get ready. I don't know if I can do his whole name in one breath. Don Miguel Gregorio Antonio Ignacio Hidalgo y Costilla Gallaga Mandarte Villasenor. It's his full name. More commonly called Miguel Hidalgo y Costilla or just Miguel Hidalgo. He was a priest and a leader in the Mexican War of Independence and he is recognized as the father of the nation for Mexico. His story is a little bit, he's not a typical priest, obviously, if you think about like armed revolutions, usually priests aren't at the front of them. So he, he was a, he was a kind of an alternative priest and he was definitely very, very interested in politics and the plight of native Mexicans and all of that, which is what eventually led to his role in the beginning of the Mexican War of Independence. So I'll just kind of go through his life a little bit and talk about the early days of the Mexican War of Independence. He was the second born child of Cristobal Hidalgo y Costilla Espinosa de los Monteros and Ana Maria Gallaga Mandarte Villasenor, both of whom were Criollos or Creoles, which is a term used for people of full Spanish descent born in the viceroyalties. So at the time, Mexico and much of Central America and parts of what is now the United States were part of New Spain, which was all a Spanish colony under a viceroy. And so if you were of pure Spanish descent, but born in the colonies, you were considered a Criollo. There were other terms for people of different descents, which I will mention as we go through. It'll become important at some point. He was of Basque ancestry on his mother's side, and his most recent identifiable Spanish ancestor was his maternal great-grandfather, who was from Durango, Biscay. He was also, his father's side was Criollo families native to Teupilco. I'm trying hard to get these Mexican pronunciation is correct. His father was a hacienda manager in Valladolid, Michoacan, which is where Hidalgo spent most of his life. Michoacan is a state, one of the states of Mexico in kind of like central Mexico on the Pacific side. A hacienda, in case you don't know what a hacienda is, if you ever heard that term but don't know what specifically is, it's kind of, it was an estate in the Spanish colonies or even in Spain could be like a plantation or a mine or a factory or a combination thereof, but it was owned by a like rich family. And then there was work that was done on the estate. That's what a hacienda is. It comes from the word hacer, meaning to make. So it's a place where things were made. Hidalgo was baptized at eight days old in the Catholic parish church of Quiseo de los Naranjos. He had three other brothers, Jose Joaquin, Manuel Mariano, and Jose Maria before their mother died when Hidalgo was nine years old. So the Mexican War of Independence has a lot to do with what was going on in Spain. Obviously, like the American War of Independence also dealt with what was going on in Britain. But like there were factors back in Europe that played a major role. In 1759, Charles III of Spain 
ascended to the throne and he sent out a visitor general with the power to investigate and reform all parts of colonial government. During this time, Miguel's father determined that Miguel and his younger brother, Joaquin, should both enter the priesthood and hierarchy of the Catholic Church. They had a decent amount of money, right? He was a hacienda manager. And so he paid for private instruction for the two of them. And Hidalgo was ready for further education at that point. I don't know if I mentioned his years. I should give you context for his years. Miguel Hidalgo was born on May 8th, 1753 and died on July 30th, 1811. So his life covered the American revolutionary period into the Napoleonic War time, which if you know, the Mexican independence movement began in like 1810. Cool. So at the age of 15, Hidalgo was sent to Valladolid, Michoacan, to study at the Colegio de San Francisco Javier with the Jesuits. However, the Jesuits were expelled from Mexico in 1767. So he moved over to the Colegio de San Nicolas, which is a public university. He completed his preparatory education in 1770. He, After this, he went to the Royal and Pontifical University of Mexico in Mexico City, earning his degree in philosophy and theology in 1773. It was a traditional education for the priesthood, learned Latin rhetoric, logic, and he also studied many indigenous languages, like many of the priests in Mexico, such as Nahuatl, Otomi, and Purepecha. He also studied Italian and French, and he earned the nickname El Zorro, which means the fox, for his reputation for cleverness at school. He also read and studied the works of the Enlightenment because he had learned how to read French. However, those works were forbidden by the Catholic Church in Mexico, because if you know anything about Enlightenment writing, it a lot of it was kind of anti-authoritarian, anti-authority, anti which often meant anti-Catholic Church. He was ordained as a priest in 1778 at the age of 25. From 1779 to 1792, he dedicated himself to teaching at the Colegio de San Nicolas Obispo in Valladolid. It was one of the most important educational centers of the vice royalty, according to him. He was a professor of Latin grammar and arts as well as theology. He became the treasurer in 1787 and was dean of the school in 1790. As a rector, Hidalgo continued studying the liberal ideas that were coming from France and other parts of Europe. In 1792, the authorities ousted him for revising traditional teaching methods, but also for irregular handling of some funds, quote unquote. He was sent off to work in the parishes of Colima and San Felipe Torres Mochas until he became the parish priest in Dolores, Guanajuato, uh, succeeding his brother, Jose Joaquin, who had died a few weeks earlier on September 19th, 1802. Although he had a traditional education and as an educator, he had innovated the teaching methods and curriculum. He did not advocate or live the way expected of 18th century Mexican priests. His Enlightenment era ideals caused him to challenge traditional political and religious views. He questioned a lot the absolute authority of the Spanish king. He challenged numerous ideas presented by the church, including the power of the popes, the virgin birth and clerical celibacy. So he was more of a secular cleric not only because of like what he believed, but also his role. Like he was a college professor mm -hmm. for a lot of it, not necessarily a parish priest for most of that time. He was not bound by a vow of poverty. So he, like many other secular priests, pursued business activities and he owned three haciendas. He also formed liaisons with women in contradiction to his vow of chastity. And it wasn't just one. Uh, one was with Manuela Ramos Pichardo, with whom he had two children. He had a child with Bibiana Lucero. He later lived with a woman named Maria Manuela Herrera. 
had two daughters with her, even though they were never married, and later fathered three other children with a woman named Josefa Quintana. He very much did not care about his vow of chastity. Because of these actions, his teachings, uh, his kind of flaunting the church rules, he appeared before the court of the Inquisition, but the court did not find him guilty. He was an egalitarian, and as a parish priest in San Felipe and Dolores, he opened his house to natives and mestizos, as well as criollos. So mestizos are mixed European and indigenous ancestry. Yeah. So this is kind of his background leading up to the War of Independence. So he's in Dolores. He's a parish priest there. In the meantime, things are going on. Obviously, it's a colony. It's being exploited for natural resources and labor in a way that is beneficial to Spain and the Spanish homeland and detrimental to Mexico. So in the city of Querétaro, which is in the state of Querétaro, it's in central Mexico, a conspiracy was brewing, organized by Mayor Miguel Dominguez and his wife, and members of the military such as Ignacio Allende, Juan Aldama, and Mariano Abbasolo. Allende was in charge of convincing Hidalgo to join his movement because the priest of Dolores had a bunch of influential friends all over New Spain, including the mayor of Guanajuato and the bishop of Michoacan. Both of them were friends of Hidalgo, and so these conspirators were like, we need to get Hidalgo on our side. He seems like he is already, but he can help get our movement going. In the meantime, in Europe, the Napoleonic Wars were going on. So in 1807, France and Spain signed a treaty called the Treaty of Fontainebleau, which said they agreed to invade Portugal together. And Portugal was an ally of the United Kingdom. French troops were supposed to go through Spain to Portugal, but they instead remained in Spain and occupied the country. The Spanish people were upset by the presence of French troops and what the French troops were doing, how they were treating them. King Charles IV and Prince Ferdinand VII of Spain were kidnapped. And Napoleon, after they were kidnapped, Napoleon forced them to abdicate and installed his brother Joseph Bonaparte as King of Spain. This triggered a revolt by the Spanish troops and an uprising in Madrid. There is a Goya painting about it. Further revolts across Spain occurred. In 1808, a British army landed in Portugal, and then Britain and France went to war against each other in Portugal and Spain. So obviously, Spain and the Spanish government didn't really have a lot of like control over New Spain, right? There wasn't a lot of attention that could really be given to it with all of this instability. So back to Hidalgo, he's in Dolores. He's a parish priest. He brought some of his family there. He continued his secular practices and he turned over most of the clerical duties to one of his vicars, and he devoted himself almost exclusively to commerce, intellectual pursuits, and humanitarian activities. He tried to teach locals grape cultivation, the raising of silkworms, things like that, to try and promote economic activity for the poor and rural people there. He, he established some factories and taught the indigenous people to make leather, bricks, pottery. He promoted beekeeping. All of this was to like help people be self-reliant. And of course, that's opposed to the mercantilist policies of colonialism. And so he was ordered to stop. In addition to this, a drought in 1807 and 1808 caused a famine in the Dolores area. And rather than releasing stored grain to market, Spanish merchants blocked its release and speculated on price increases. So there's a whole bunch of this unrest that's happening, and he's speaking out against it. And then in 1810... He commanded his brother Mauricio, as well as Ignacio Allende and Mariano Abasolo, who I talked about earlier, military leaders. 
He commanded them to go with a number of armed men and make the sheriff release a bunch of prison inmates in Dolores on the night of September 15th, 1810. And they set 80 people free. The following morning, he celebrated mass, which was attended by about 300 people, including hacienda owners, local politicians, and Spaniards. And he gave what is now known as the Grito de Dolores, or the Cry of Dolores, which is a very famous speech calling the people of his parish to leave their homes and join with him in a rebellion against the government in the name of their king, Ferdinand VII. So the beginning of this was to say, we are opposed to the bad government of Mexico, of New Spain, and also the kind of fake government of of Bonaparte. We are in favor of our true king, Ferdinand VII. The Grito did not condemn the notion of monarchy or criticize the current social order in detail, but it was very clear when he made references to bad government. The Grito also emphasizes loyalty to Catholicism, which was a sentiment that both Creoles and, and Peninsula could sympathize with. So Peninsulares are the people in New Spain who were born in Old Spain. <laughs> They're the ones who are not born there. So uh, he got an outpouring of support, intellectuals, liberal priests, lots of poor people. They all followed him with enthusiasm. They were joined by indigenous people and mestizos and a number of military leaders as well. His leadership gave the movement a supernatural aspect. A lot of people following him believe that like they had God on their side. They were being led by Fernando VII himself. Hidalgo even used the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe on his banner. So there was, there was a very spiritual aspect to this movement, uh, as well as the political reality of a revolution. Hidalgo and Allende left Dolores with about 800 men, and they marched through Spain, through Bajio, through San Miguel el Grande, and just through a lot of smaller towns up to a larger town known as Guanajuato. From there, they went to Michoacan and stayed there for a while until they eventually marched toward Mexico City. They had some early victories against the imperial government, against the like Spanish troops, which was mostly due to numbers. The colonial authorities were surprised at first by the extent and intensity of the movement. By the 21st of September, which was only like a week later, Hidalgo was proclaimed General and Supreme Commander, or Generalissimo. And then a week later, he arrived at Guanajuato, like you said. However, after the insurgents overwhelmed the defenses at the Alondiga de Granaditas, which was where the peninsular and criollo populations took refuge, the insurgents killed approximately 400, 600 people, presumably unarmed and helpless people. Hidalgo lost a lot of support from liberal criollos at that point. He continued moving through Mexico. I'm going to get less specific about things. He took the town of Valladolid with little opposition in October, and there he issued proclamations against the Peninsulares, who he accused of arrogance and despotism, as well as enslaving those in the Americas for almost 300 years. At this point, he also forced the bishop-elect of Michoacan to rescind the excommunication order that had been circulated against him a few weeks earlier. However, the Inquisition issued another excommunication edict, declaring him seditionary, apostate, and heretic. The insurgents prepared to march to the capital of New Spain, Mexico City. Before that, he was approached by the canon of the cathedral and asked that the atrocities of San Miguel and Solea and Guanajuato not be repeated. He agreed to it, but he also, as we find moving forward, he also didn't want to upset his troops, so he didn't necessarily enforce that, which isn't great. 
Also, he found the doors of the cathedral locked to him, which infuriated him. And he ended up basically looting the city treasury before they marched off. Yeah, approaching Mexico City, they encountered another battle where the insurgents won but suffered heavy casualties. They got very close to Mexico City. Allende wanted to press forward and attack the capital, but Hidalgo disagreed. One of the first of a, a number of disagreements that Hidalgo had with Allende. Hidalgo, it's, it's thought, maybe he thought that the troops were so poorly trained that it would be a bloodbath and he didn't want to lose too many people. Who knows what the actual reason is. He decided to turn away from Mexico City and move north toward Guadalajara. Uh, after turning back, many of the insurgents deserted, and by the time he got to Acuco, his army had shrunk to just 40,000 men from the approximately, I think, 100,000 it was before. He was defeated in November of 1810, and at that point, Allende chose to take the troops to Guanajuato instead of Guadalajara. Hidalgo arrived in Guadalajara on November 26th with just 7,000 troops. So he's lost a lot of people and they have a lot of people have either been killed or uh, ran off. At this point, the royalists make their gains. Uh, Guanajuato fell and Allende was forced to retreat and uh, flee to Guadalajara. And then royalist forces marched on Guadalajara, arriving in January 1811 with nearly 6,000 men. Allende and Abasolo wanted to concentrate their forces in the city and plan an escape route, but Hidalgo decided to make a stand at Calderon Bridge, just outside the city. He had between 80,000 and 100,000 men and 95 cannons against just 6,000 royalists, but the better-trained royalists decisively defeated the insurgent army, forcing Hidalgo to flee. On the 25th of January, near the city of Aguascalientes, Allende and other insurgent leaders took military command away from Hidalgo, blaming him for their defeats. On the 21st of March, 1811, after some further losses and retreats and hiding, they were betrayed by the royalist Ignacio Elizondo, and they were captured and taken to Chihuahua. He was defrocked and excommunicated officially on the 27th of July in 1811. He was subsequently declared guilty of treason by a military court. He was tortured through the flaying of his hands, symbolically removing the chrism placed upon them at his priestly ordination. Yikes. Yeah. And then he was executed. It's not exactly sure how he was executed. It appears it was by firing squad. That's kind of like the most accepted way like that probably happened. Before his execution, supposedly he thanked his jailers for their humane treatment, and at his execution he stated, though I may die, I shall be remembered forever. You all will soon be forgotten. I guess, I don't know, content warning gets kind of grisly. I already talked about the flaying of his hands, but his body and the bodies of Allende, Aldama, and Jose Mariano Jimenez, who were other leaders, were decapitated, and the heads were put on display on the four corners of Alondiga de Granat Granaditas in Guanajuato. The heads remained there for 10 years until the end of Mexican War of Independence as a way of demoralizing the insurgents. His headless body was first displayed outside the prison and then buried in the Church of St. Francis in Chihuahua. However, they were transferred to Mexico City in 1824. After Hidalgo's death, there was a political vacuum on the insurgent side until 1812, at which point the next leader, Jose Maria Moreros Perez y Pavón, became head of the insurgents. Then he was captured. I'm not going to get into the whole Mexican War of Independence. It took about 10 years of various insurgencies and rebellions until finally Mexico gained its independence from Spain. But that is obviously the end of Hidalgo's life. So there's not much more to talk about him there. 
as I said, he has been hailed as the father of the nation. Even though it was Augustine de Iturbide, who was the first head of state of Mexico in 1821. Augustine was the like first emperor of Mexico post-Spanish rule. But Hidalgo is, like I said, referred to as the father of the nation, as like the man who started it all. Shortly after gaining independence, the day to celebrate it varied between September 16th, which was the day of Hidalgo's Grito de Dolores, and September 27th, which was when Iturbide's forces captured Mexico City, ending the war. Eventually, the 16th of September became officially recognized as the day of Mexican independence. He has been depicted in a, a bunch of you know paintings and statues and murals. Diego Rivera painted him in half a dozen murals. There's a painting of him at San Nicolas McGinty University in Morelia, commemorating the 200th anniversary of Hidalgo's birth. The town of his parish was renamed Dolores Hidalgo in his honor, and the state of Hidalgo was created in 1869. Every year, on the night of the 15th to the 16th of December, the president of Mexico reenacts the Grito from the balcony of the National Palace. And that scene is repeated by the heads of cities and towns all over Mexico. He's also the namesake of Hidalgo County, Texas. Also, the international airport in Guadalajara is named after Miguel Hidalgo y Costilla, as well as Miguel Hidalgo is a borough in Mexico City. And there are obviously like monuments and stuff all around to him. Like I said, his, his remains were moved later. They lie now in the column of the Angel of Independence in Mexico City. It's a massive column in kind of the center of the city. Next to it is a lamp lit to represent the sacrifice of those who gave their lives for Mexican independence. And his birthday is a civic holiday in Mexico. Hmm. So there you go. Miguel Hidalgo y Costilla. That was great. I should have known all of that, but I knew basically none of it. Yeah, me too. Like, I, yeah, I should have known a lot of that, but I don't know, I guess... I took European history in high school and it's only, I guess, tangential to European history there. Yes, definitely should know more about that. All right. So that's Miguel Hidalgo y Costilla. Are you ready for a quiz? Absolutely. Let's have a quiz. All right. This quiz is about independence. Okay. And I realized after I wrote it, I have like two TV questions and a movie question. Will Smith. We'll see. (laughs) All right. Question number one. A precursor to the Mexican War of Independence was a failed conspiracy among a group of Criollos in 1799. Their plan involved freeing prisoners and arming them with cutlasses and jungle-clearing blades. They were ratted out before the plan could be carried out, and their operation became known as the conspiracy of what handheld weapon? Due to their armament, not the involvement of Danny Trejo. Hmm. What handheld weapon? What were the weapons that you said was sorry? I'm, I know cutlasses. I'm cutlasses. That's okay. okay. Cutlasses and jungle clearing blades. Okay. My first thought was pistol, but jungle clearing blade sounds like you're avoiding a word and pistol doesn't make like, yeah. Machete, I think is, is what's coming to mind. So I'm going to go with machete. Wow. That's good. It is the conspiracy of the machetes. Well done. Yes. Danny Trejo played a character, played the title character of the film Machete in 2010 and the sequel Machete Kills in 2013. Yes. It was a conspiracy of the machetes. And they were like, 
we're going to free a bunch of prisoners. We're going to arm them. And then we're going to go and take control. And someone who is like in the group, I guess, got cold feet when they heard like, oh, they actually have weapons. Oh, they have a plan and went and told the authorities. And then they were all like, you know, tried and mm. convicted, which is a bummer, I guess. I guess. I don't know. Armed insurrection. Like it, 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 it would all be bad. I don't know if it's necessarily a bummer, but <laughs> anyway, yes, the conspiracy of the machetes was the kind of a, a forerunner to the movement of nice. 1810. Yeah. All right. You got 10 points. Question two. Independence, Missouri is home to the trailheads of the three principal trails that pioneers traveled during the American westward expansion of the mid 19th century. For three points each and a total of 10, if you get all three, name those trails. They were all named for their destinations, which are two current states and one current state capital. Two current states and one current state capital. All right. I'm going to say the Oregon Trail. That's the easy Okay, you got one. There we go. You died of dysentery. Yes. That is uh, that is my generation of the Oregon Trail generation. You're not, are you? You're you're a little too. I played young. Oregon Trail. I'm not saying you were not old enough to have played Oregon Trail. I'm saying the Oregon Trail generation is specifically the slice of like the very last Gen Xers and the first millennials. I okay, I guess sure. Just saying, right. I died of dysentery plenty. Yeah, fair okay. enough. I I need to I need to get the new Oregon Trail. It looks pretty cool. I've watched some people play it. It seems seems pretty good. Yeah, I want to check it out. All right. Two current states and one current state capital. What all is over there? We've got California. We've got Oregon. We've got Washington. I'm like drawing a little U.S. map trying to <laughs> figure out. But, uh, I don't know what. I don't know how these states fit together. <laughs> it's just kind of a mush. Indiana, Arizona. There's New Mexico. Um, what? There's a New Mexico? <laughs> Utah sounds promising. Not the Utah Trail, though. Two current states. California. No. Don't think so. One current state capital. Hmm. All right. Carson City? Salt Lake City? Let's let's say... Ugh, I don't know these trails. Let's say Utah and Carson City. Okay, you got three points for Oregon Trail. Right. Uh, it, it, the other one is the California Trail ugh. and the Santa Fe Trail. Santa Fe... Oh, no, of course it is. Ugh. All right. Well, I tried. That's okay. I wonder if being someone who has lived most of his life in the place where those trails went, yeah. I'm perhaps more aware of them yeah. than someone who has not. Well, I should be, though. Shouldn't be eh. East Coast chauvinism. <laughs> That's all right. You got Oregon Trail. I mean, if you miss that one, it's like, what That's are you a, doing? That would be embarrassing, yeah. 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 All right, you're at 13 points. <clears throat> Question. I was like, I was like California's big. <laughs> it couldn't and have then, a trail. And then Sacramento sound, didn't sound right. Sacramento Trail just didn't didn't sound right. So right. Yeah. Oh, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah, it does not. All right. Question three. 
1996's Independence Day is broadly considered a good movie, with an audience score of 75% on Rotten Tomatoes and a 68% tomato meter score. However, two decades later, its sequel racked up a dismal 30% audience score and 29% tomato meter. Given its lackluster showing, what ironic subtitle did that film have, as it did nothing to bring the franchise back into prominence? I don't know. I'm um, sorry. No, that's okay. I made a really hard quiz. No, no I, should, I should know everything, though. <laughs> that's fair. Uh-oh. You know, that's fair. We should know literally everything. Literally everything. All right. Let's see. Did nothing to bring the franchise back back to prominence independence day resurrection is coming to mind i don't think that's right revolution feels good but doesn't quite fit with your clue i don't think i know i'm gonna go with revolution oh it is an r word it's resurgence resurgence i i thought that it probably had a re there Mm -hmm resurgence that makes more sense sorry that's okay all right okay i'm gonna rally all right 13 points all right question four as we are both fans of as we're both fans of firefly i'm going to cut a little deeper on this one oh no (laughs) oh no no that's okay no it's okay we've got it let's go the opening scene of The Train Job finds Mal, Zoe, and Jane in a bar, quietly minding their own business, when another patron makes a toast. He takes issue with the hue of Mal's coat, which is the signature brown of the Independence, who had lost the fight for Independence six years prior. What holiday, which could be the opposite of Independence Day, was toasted? Oh no, if it's not immediately on the tip of your tongue, I don't know. <laughs> oh, it's not. The opposite of Independence Day been too long since i watched firefly all right let's see federation day maybe like it's the it was the day that the alliance brought everyone together okay is it is it unific is it unification day it is unification day you you did it oh man i'm so so sorry. I was like, oh, sweet. I can talk about Firefly because <laughs> we've talked about Firefly before. Oh, yep. no. Okay. Good job. You got it. Got Unification yeah. Day. Yes. Yay. Anyway. Yes. That is it. At this point, I don't think we need to say anything more about Firefly because if our listeners haven't watched it, they already <laughs> know that we want them to watch it. All right. Yep. Mm-hmm. Question five. You're at 26 points. The second developmental life stage, focused on the virtue of will and autonomy versus shame slash doubt, is part of the theory of personality by what German-American psychoanalyst? He could be in a club with American football player John Johnson and British actor Robert Robertson. Hmm. I think you're saying that he has a like a double name. Oh. But I don't know if I know who this is. Eric Erickson is coming to mind. We were on stages of development before we got to the clue. And I'm like, Freud, Jung, Piaget, and... I think a little later than Jung and Freud is yeah, this person. Yeah, okay. But probably contemporary with Piaget. Maybe maybe a little... Yeah. I think contemporary. I was like, Piaget, Piagetson. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
the name Eric Erickson came to mind and I don't have a better guess. So I'm going to go with it and hope it's right. It is right. It is yes. Eric Erickson. Nice. Ah, well right. done. Getting it out of the, out of the clear blue. Whew. All right. Oof. I am sorry. I made a hard quiz. Your final category is, is a television series. And right. I guess tongue in cheek jokes that i make i don't know <laughs> all right and i'm at i think you said 26 at, before but oh, i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure that yeah you, it's you 23 actually, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah so now i'm at 33 33 right. makes sense yeah. yes all right how about i wager 17 of them how about that okay for a nice round 50 when you absolutely get it right what antonym of independence is also the title of a 1989 steve martin film which inspired both a 1990-91 to TV series and a 2010-2015 to TV series. The more recent series starred an ensemble cast including Lauren Graham, Dax Shepard, Mae Whitman, and Craig T. Nelson, who portrayed the Braverman family through tear-jerking trials and tribulations. <laughs> I love that show. That's parenthood. <laughs> yeah, it is parenthood. It is an antonym of independence. It is. It is, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't care for it. I thought it was way overwrought, but whatever. I usually feel that All way right. about those tearjerkers like Parenthood and This Is Us and whatever yeah, the, some, the some next of it one was is. Over the top. Um, I just like that one guy. What's that one guy's name? You're going to need to be a bit more specific. <laughs> the one who is in Six Feet Under and Sports Night. I don't know those shows. <laughs> Okay, well, you should, first of all. Well, I know what's... I've, I've heard of them, but Sports Night? P I don't... Peter Krause. Oh, Peter Krause. Oh, 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 okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sports Night was an older Aaron Sorkin one, like before The West Wing. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. It was a fun show. <laughs> cool. Anyway, yay, you got to 50. Yay, you did we got to 50. I made a hard quiz and you did well with it. You, <laughs> you really you. did did quite well, so yeah, nice. Thank you. Well, this was fun, and I have learned so much more about that guy whose name I definitely remember. <laughs> Miguel right Hidalgo now. y Costilla. <laughs> that one, Miguel Hidalgo y Costilla. First of all, I've learned his name. Clearly. <laughs> or I will. I will have learned his name by the time I finish editing the show. Yeah, mm -hmm. and it's and it's lovely to be back talking about Jeopardy with you. So thank you. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And thanks, listeners. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a rating or review if you have a minute to do that. Our Patreon is patreon.com slash potentpotables. And if you have friends who like Jeopardy, tell them about us. You can find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com. And our website is potentpod.com. Yeah. And we'll be back next week with more Jeopardy. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Bye.